0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a great slate of articles for you to listen to today. So let's get started. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Moisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link! Link. Our
2: first link comes to us from Atlas Obscura. It's called How a Long Lost Perfume Got a Second Life After 150 Years Underwater. Ooh. Basically, you know, the Bermuda region just has a ton of shipwrecks that are delightful for divers and archaeologists. So after an intense storm hit Bermuda in 2011, the island's custodian of historic wrecks named Philippe Max Rougeau went to do a coastal survey and found a partially exposed bow of a boat. And this belonged to a Civil War blockade runner called the Mary Celestia, which was en route to North Carolina's Confederate forces when it sank in 1864. They started examining the wreck and then they found a number of artifacts which included shoes, wine, and these two small bottles of perfume. And the items were packed together which led the team to think they might have been gifts because they were packed so well. There were some mineral deposits that had formed on them, but the bottles were otherwise intact, and one still even had a small air bubble inside, which otherwise would have been forced out by seawater, so they thought this would be really promising, especially because on the glass was the name Pièce and Lubin, London, which was a really famous 1800s perfume house on Bond Street. The lady's name is Isabel Ramsey Braxton. She said it was a perfume that Queen Victoria would have worn. And so she wondered if she could recreate the fragrance 150 years later.
0: Oh, so she didn't like when they opened up the bottle, it wasn't like, oh, just put this right on your neck. It was like, oh, let's recreate the chemical (laughs) structure of it.
2: I mean, you could put it right on your neck, but there were a lot of caustic agents that were used in solvents back in the olden days of perfumes because they weren't meant to be worn on the skin. Back then, they were meant to be worn on capes or scarves just to fend off the stench of London streets, which were awful at the time. Uh, Right. mm -hmm. So that would have been somewhat inadvisable, but it was mostly like they just wanted to kind of see what they could do to understand it through a modern lens and possibly recreate it in safer and more modern techniques. Apparently, according to Bermuda's law, all artifacts that are recovered from the sea become property of the government. And they all join this collection called the Bermuda Underwater Exploration Institute. So she had to obtain permission to keep the bottles temporarily as she did her experiments and tried to recreate it. She worked with a fellow perfumer out of New Jersey, Jean-Claude Delville, who works for drum Fragrances. And they're a huge international company, so they had all the resources that they needed to perform what's called gas chromatography, And what that does is reverse engineers a chemical formula by reading the molecular composition of a scent and then spitting out the names of the associated chemical compounds. So it's kind of like reading DNA, but not nearly as confusing. Mm -hmm. So they scraped off the mineral deposits of the bottles and opened them. And one gave a whiff of a rotten smell. So unfortunately, Mm. some seawater
0: had seeped in and spoiled the fragrance. They assume. I mean, it could (laughs) have just been like, we like smelling like rotting things.
2: You know, sometimes when you use like a Febreze or an air freshener in the (laughs) bathroom, it just creates a fruit smelling poop as opposed to like really masking it. So you may not be off, but they chose not to pursue recreating that scent for whatever subjective reasons. But The one that was intact after 150 years underwater, they thought it smelled like orange, bergamot and grapefruit with a faint aroma of flowers and sandalwood. And there were also some musky animal notes, which may have been civet or ambergris, but they didn't want to use any of those ingredients because they're really unethical to create. Like civet, I think comes from the glands of a weasel and ambergris is basically like regurgitated sperm whale stuff, kind of like if Mm -hmm. whales could have hairballs, they Mm -hmm. basically regurgitate ambergris, which yes, has been used in perfumes for a really, really long time, but Usually you can find it naturally, but a lot of perfumers do horrible things to sperm whales to obtain the ingredients. And
0: That seems hard, like to catch a whale and somehow make it puke. I mean, I I have no doubt that the ingenuity of financial interest could cause you to figure out a way to do it, but it seems like that. <laughs> I,
2: I'm not sure it would actually be try to make a live animal puke so much as it was just kill the animal and harvest what we need and then leave the carcass to just rot oh. in the sea. I'm this, See, this article doesn't go into ambergris, but I know that if you Google it, you can
0: find a lot of horrific information about the harvesting of it. This is why I would never be able to work in the perfume industry. That didn't even occur to me, like just murder (laughs) the animal. (laughs) You have a good heart. Keep it intact, Jennifer. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. (laughs) So
2: even though they did this GC technique, the machine spit out a list of hydrocarbons, acids, and other chemicals. But while these readings are kind of easy to obtain, translating these chemicals into associated aromatic compounds was a lot trickier. They basically had to resort to their own olfactory senses. I mean, they're trained perfumers. They've got a good nose. So after a lot of sniffing and guessing, they settled on a few key ingredients, including orange flower,
0: roses, sandalwood and vanilla. And so and these were going for Confederate soldiers. I mean, you said they must have been gifts because it wouldn't make (laughs) sense for soldiers to need this on the front lines.
2: Yes, and that actually shakes out to kind of how they named it. So they when they arrived at their final perfume recreation, they named it the Mary Celestia, and the article notes that naming the perfume after a ship that restocked Confederate forces was not meant to commemorate the blockade runner or any historical figures. Yeah. They believed that because it was intended as a gift, she wanted to honor that long-gone relationship, you know, perfume even 150 years ago was meant to be an intimate gift between two people who had profound feelings for each other. And so they wanted wanted to kind of preserve the romance of that context, not really celebrate, woo, Confederate forces. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they did a run of 1,854 bottles, which was a reference to the year that the ship sank. And it sold out pretty quickly. I mean, it's got quite the story. So they still sell it today. It's sold at a store called Lily Bermuda. Uh, You can buy it online if you really want to. They note that as the perfume
0: ages, it becomes richer. Just make sure you don't mix it with seawater, because then you're going to get a nasty rock smell. <laughs> well,
2: what's Unless interesting is, what is when they for. had to finalize the formula, they actually went back to Bermuda to sniff it because they wanted to account for all of like the environmental factors that could actually change what the perfume smells like. So, even with the seawater and things like that, balancing out the notes to make it as true and authentic to that first whiff in Bermuda that had to be taken into account.
0: Well, but it wasn't wow. meant to be smelled in Bermuda. It was meant to be smelled in whatever South Carolina or something, wasn't it? Yeah, but hey, you know what? It's Bermuda's now. Forget stuff. <laughs> that's that's yeah. right. I mean, it's it belongs to the government, and so they needed
2: to have their stamp on it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> right. Next link.
1: Next, Next link. link. Okay, this article comes to us from Discover Magazine, and it is titled "Typhoid Mary Was a Real Asymptomatic Carrier Who Caused Multiple Outbreaks." Oh Ooh, yeah, too soon. Yeah, <laughs> both too long ago and too soon. both, both the ones, in my opinion. So I'm going to hop on my own personal soapbox for a second and Mm -hmm. distinguish between pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic because there was that CDC news article or whatever that was misinterpreted by the press that said asymptomatic transmission is very rare. And everybody thought they meant pre-symptomatic, whereas pre-symptomatic, you're infective before you show symptoms, which is even like a cough. But typhoid Mary was actually asymptomatic, so she never showed symptoms the entire time.
0: Yeah, because the deal was she never got better either, right? She just kept it forever in her body and was never sick or able to defeat it with her own immune system, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so in 2020, the coronavirus pandemic has led us to examine how this kind of carrier can affect infection rates. So one recent study in the Italian town of Vaux estimated that over 40% of cases may be asymptomatic. This could be pre-symptomatic here, but stoking fears that COVID-19 will continue to be unknowingly spread by seemingly healthy individuals. The life of Typhoid Mary, the first recorded case of this time, is just a reminder of the importance of raising public awareness, and also indicates how far our understanding of germ theory has come. So... Going back into history, when the Warren family was hit by typhoid fever at a summer countryside retreat in 1906, there's no obvious explanation. The infection usually spread through food or water, which was contaminated by salmonella, so it was largely associated with poor inner-city areas where sanitation Mm. was overlooked. One paper at the time even called it a disease of dirt, poverty, and national carelessness. Wow. Yeah. So the Warren family hires this investigator named George Soper. And the drinking water in Oyster Bay was fine, so Soper turns his attention towards the 37-year-old Irish cook, Mary Mallon, who had since left the household. He found that of the last eight families that had hired Mallon as a cook and consumed her popular and very salmonella-friendly dish, peaches with ice cream, uh, (laughs) seven of those families had contracted typhoid fever. Mm. So that was enough evidence for authorities to just go and track her down in person. So just like some Americans in 2020 that have resisted the recommendations to wear masks and socially distance, Malin was also reluctant to accept medical advice and initially chased Soper out of her Park Avenue workplace with a carving fork when he asked for blood, urine and feces samples. So when Soper notified the New York Public Health Department, Malin actually evaded arrest for five hours until she was caught. And then the physician, Sarah Josephine Baker, actually had to sit on her in the ambulance to prevent Uh, her escape. So she was not having it at all.
0: Uh, But did they actually have measures of like, I mean, there wasn't any way to say, okay, you can still work as a cook, but you have to put on a mask or gloves or anything like it was basically a death sentence for her in the sense that if she couldn't work anywhere, you know, I mean, like I've heard the story and I've always felt a certain amount of pity for her. In the sense that, you know, they were just consigning her to living in a room by herself forever. I mean, she wasn't able. Destitution, poverty, and death. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So after she tested positive for typhoid, she was forcibly moved to a quarantine facility on North Brother Island. And she stayed there for about three years. But a new city health commissioner did help release her on the condition that she never work as a cook again.
0: Right, but yeah. she did. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: So <laughs> Baker tracked her down five years later where he found that she was working under an alias in the kitchen of Sloan Maternity Hospital, which was in the midst of a typhoid outbreak. Uh. See,
0: and that's what I lose my sympathy for because it's like, okay, you gotta work, but you don't have to work in a neonatal hospital. Like
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a little bit in her defense that the article goes into, like they're asking, why did she keep cooking? And she was a female Irish immigrant and it was probably the best paying job available for her, and she felt fine the entire time. She showed no symptoms. And there was also actually no precedent for this ever before. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, I can imagine being literally the first person as germ theory is still in its infancy. Like it wasn't even a common practice for cooks to wash their hands yet. Uh, However, Malin was actually very much like our modern day certain citizens of the U.S. who did not trust suggestions from medical professionals at all. Uh, Ah. They were telling her that her gallbladder was the infection center and should be removed. But unfortunately, it was a life endangering surgery at the time. Right. So Mm -hmm. her refusal ensured that she would actually spend the next 23 years on North Brother Island as well.
0: So they just locked her up eventually because she wouldn't stop working.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, she was arrested again, and that's when the image of Typhoid Mary was solidified in the media. Mm. The New York Tribune referred to her as an agent of death in 1918, <sighs> and there are ghoulish cartoons showing her cracking skulls into oh. a bowl instead <laughs> of eggs. Yeah, so this was
2: not a particularly kind time in history t- when it came to attitudes towards Irish immigrants, either. Right?
1: Yeah. No. Ab- absolutely not. And. Part of this is probably because of her class and being an immigrant and also just being the first asymptomatic carrier on record. But at the same time, she could have just been easily scapegoated as this unmarried working class immigrant without a family. Because, as far as they knew back then, no one else was quarantined against their will in the same way that she was.
2: Yeah.
1: And, unfortunately, it's kind of sad because she had no idea what she was actually being blamed for, and the public at large had no understanding of asymptomatic carriers, and she, didn't, she couldn't Google it or anything. And right. as a quote, she as she told a reporter, uh, I never had typhoid in my life and have always been healthy. Why should I be banished like a leper and compelled to live in solitary confinement with only a dog for a companion?
2: I mean, that sounds very timely. Good Lord.
1: Yeah. Even towards the end, apparently typhoid Mary just had no real context for how significant her case was in medical history at large.
0: Right. Um, well, she didn't even believe it. She's like, yeah. <laughs> you people are just locking me up for no reason.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Which just goes to show you how complex and difficult it is when you're dealing with something that doesn't have uh, immediate visceral effects, we could Mm -hmm.
0: say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a bummer. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link.
0: Well, we are in the throes of summer. I know it's not super hot everywhere that our listeners live, but in Texas, it's over 100 and it sucks and uh so we have mm-hmm. a nice refreshing article today from Smithsonian Mag it's called the accidental invention of the slip and slide ooh. Uh, ooh did you guys did you guys have slip and slides as kids did you ride on them
1: i didn't have one but i rode one for sure yeah,
0: yeah. and it's... do you ride a slip and slide yeah, or is I don't that know. just something you play on or use you ride it I don't know. I mean, mean, if you're doing it correctly. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. I mean, that was actually always my problem with slip and sides was maybe this was just user error, but we could never get it really that slippery. And so it really Mm. was just an exercise in like flinging my body onto the ground. (laughs) (laughs) And and it hurt and I didn't enjoy them. And I was never able to figure out why people enjoyed these things. But uh, you can actually get a good speed on them. And several people have injured themselves on them, which we'll get to in a minute. (laughs) Take yourself back, if you will, to the summer of 1960. Robert Carrier of Lakewood, California, came home one day to find his 10-year-old son, Mike, and Mike's friends sliding around with a hose on their painted concrete driveway. And I guess this was sort of like a very smooth concrete. Like, all the concrete I've ever seen is pretty rough. Like, sidewalk concrete is not something you could slip around on. But I guess they had a much smoother driveway. And his friends had just sort of been bored and hot. And so they brought out the hose and were just sort of slipping and sliding around. And as he said, basically, if you're doing this on concrete, you're going to hurt yourself. So he had mm-hmm. the great idea. He worked as an upholsterer for a luxury boat manufacturing company, and mm-hmm. he brought home a 50-foot roll of hide which was, you know, a brand new technological invention back then. It was this vinyl-y fabric that was great for boats because it wouldn't soak in the water, and it was very slippery. So he just brought home a big roll of it, rolled it out in the yard, and I was like, there you go, kids. Now you won't hurt yourself. But... After some friends of his heard about it, he sort of started modifying the model. He added some sewn tubes down the length of it that you could connect a hose to so it would constantly mm. spray the water. Keep it lubricated. That's right? right. Keep it slippery and not have to have somebody constantly spraying a hose on it. And he mm-hmm. filed a patent for it in 1961. The patent called the item aquatic play equipment for the sport of body planing. So, oh. <laughs> you know, you got to you got to get real specific there in your U.S. patents. Uh, he showed sure. it to some co-workers and Carrier's boss, it turned out, knew someone who worked at wham which was the toy company back in the 1960s. So wham licensed the toy. They shortened it to 25 feet and they subbed in kind of a less expensive vinyl that was, of course, in that classic yellow color. Mm-hmm. And they revealed it as the slip and slide magic water slide at the Toy Fair trade show in New York City in February of 1961. By September of 1961, they had sold over 300,000 of them. Yikes. Yeah. So, I mean, it was sort of a, it was an item of its time. It kind of hit the market right when it needed to. It was priced at just $9.95, which was cheaper than a pass to a neighborhood pool. And the commercial, which they have linked in the article, it's fantastic. It just showed kids using it. You know, there really wasn't a whole lot of like fun, exciting graphics, nothing like that. It was just a bunch of kids Flying down the the ground towards the camera, and <laughs> honestly, itself, you know? yeah, and watching it, I was like, "Oh, that does look like fun." How come mine never worked like that?
1: But <laughs> uh-uh.
0: The the advertisement's great. Also, at the end of the ad, there's an ad for another Whammo product called the Water Wiggle, which was just this sort of cap that you attach to the end of the hose, and because it redirected the flow of the water backwards, it causes the hose to just sort of like fly around and squiggle around in the air. It's very weird. <laughs> Um, it has a little happy face on it. I don't know. But uh, anyway, as of 2011, more than 30 million of them had been sold. You know, they've modified it over the years. Modern versions have double lanes for racing. They've got various inflatable add-ons that are like, you know, a big shark jaw you can fly through. <laughs> There's that splash dunk ball net where you can like slide and try to throw a ball in at the same time. But crucially, only slip and slides can be that patented yellow color. If it's yellow, Ooh, it's a huh. real slip and slide. And if it's not, eh, you got a knock off. It's not the same one. <laughs> As I mentioned before, they have had some problems. They did a brief recall in 1993 due to injuries. Between 1973 and 1991, seven adults and a 13-year-old boy suffered neck injuries, paraplegia, Uh, and even quadriplegia. Basically, because they had shortened the length of the slip and slide over time, if you're too heavy and you're going too fast, you go flying down that thing, you hit that abrupt stop at the end, and that's what injured you. So they re-released it with a warning that it was for only under 12, And they added this inflatable reservoir of water at the end. So you kind of dive into a little pool to slow yourself down a little bit. Uh, But primarily it was just putting the this is only for under 12. So if you're an adult, you hurt yourself. It's not our fault. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly to me, it is not yet in the Hall of Fame at the Strong Museum of Play, which is sort of this big toy museum that's really fantastic if you ever get to go. But it has been on the nominee list since 2014. And basically, people involved say it's going to get its day soon. They just sort of have to pick one every year, and it hasn't gotten its chance yet. It mm-hmm. remains, even today, the most profitable item in Whammo's line of toys.
2: So hey. it's, wow. you know,
0: to this day, people like him. And they had a fun little uh, denouement at the end of the story there. The inventor, Robert Carrier, he used his royalties to start an aircraft interiors business. So, you know, he went he went from boats to aircraft. It was a nice little step up for
2: him. <laughs> oh, <nice. laughs> Good
0: for him. Yeah. And he noted, of course, you know, it really was kind of his son and his son's friend's invention. He just sort of added the materials to make it a little safer. Well, those heirs have earned every cent of their inheritance. How about that? That's right. And if I if I don't want to use it this summer, that's okay because I'm too old for it now. I'm not allowed according <laughs> to the rules. So that's I mean, yeah, it I've seen mostly like fail videos
2: that involve some kind of DIY or right. know, spin on the slip and slide. And my risk tolerance is definitely starting to fade the older I get. But right. uh, you know, make sure you've got a lot of bumpers, a lot of cooking she spaces around and enjoy responsibly. That's right. And make sure it's yellow. Otherwise... <laughs>
1: Yeah, if it's not yellow, it's a health hazard.
2: That's right. <laughs> and remember, we're talking about slip and slides, not urine. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <I> think that <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just <laughs> thinking of the make it yellow, or if it's yellow, let it mellow. And oh. uh, I don't know why I started thinking <laughs> of pee. My That's okay. Apologies. That's
0: a good tagline for just about anything, really, is we're not talking <laughs> about urine.
2: Like...
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
2: All right, this article comes from BBC Future. It's a bit long and it's a little sobering, but it kind of ties back into our Typhoid Mary article this week. Uh, This is called What Makes People Stop Caring? Oh,
1: mm.
2: I can think yeah. of a lot of things, but yeah, then so many things. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly true. But this takes a pretty broad scope at looking at specifically how deaths of individuals can have a powerful effect on our emotions. But as the numbers rise, so does our indifference. And this article kind of tries to unpack how this works. And it starts off with a really powerful quote from Mother Teresa, which is, If I look at the mass, I will never act. But if I look at the one, I will. And this basically exemplifies one of the most baffling aspects of the human response to the plight of others. So if we know someone who has been personally affected by COVID, say, or a hurricane, it really hits home we're really motivated to act we care a lot more but when the numbers grow and it becomes a statistic the millions of lives that are lost like in natural disasters or wars it can be too large for us to really process and respond to emotionally which gives us this sense of fatigue and compassion erosion right
0: sure but- i mean it it feels like a survival mechanism it feels like at some point it's too much and you're gonna just completely shut down so you have to sort of block that off in order to keep going. Yeah,
1: It makes me think of that Eddie Izzard bit where if you kill one person, you're a murderer but if you kill a million people, (laughs) then people just say, you must get up very early in the morning. Oh, that's so dark. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: but you're right. It does kind of tie into a bit of a survival instinct. So, Melissa Finucane, a senior behavioral and social scientist at the policy think tank, the Rand Corporation, make of that as you will, they study <laughs> decision making and risk assessment. And what she quotes is from an evolutionary perspective, we were focused on the things that threatened to kill us immediately or small group interactions. But now we're trying to figure out very complex risk scenarios where there's a lot of statistics available. But the average human who's not a statistical analyst or epidemiologist, they don't have the tools you need at their fingertips to make judgments about something as vast and complex as the global pandemic. They've got a lot of sort of examples of how this is really well documented. For example, you remember the old like infomercials that would show you pictures of children have their names and, you know, Sally Struthers is crying, mm-hmm. and you know, please donate. What they found is that by looking at these kind of advertisements, If you were to look at a picture of a poor child or a picture of two poor children and asked about willingness to donate, instead of feeling twice as sad and twice as willing to help, people actually donated less when they saw two children instead of one because an individual is the easiest unit for humans to understand and empathize with. Once it becomes two, that empathy and that EQ is divided.
0: Wow. I mean, that's amazing that it works even at that scale. I mean, I think most people can identify with, oh, yeah, 100,000 dead. I can't even comprehend that. But even just going from one to two is enough to Mm -hmm. say, you know what, I care a little bit less now. Absolutely. Yeah. There were also people
2: in the study who were shown pictures of a single child, but then half were given statistics about the number of other people starving in the region where the child was from. This is the kind of thing that we've seen in natural disaster charity videos and things like that. And they thought that if you show how serious the problem was, people would be more motivated to help. But donations actually dropped in half when the photo include the statistics. Wow. And they looked at all kinds of disasters, including the Rwandan genocide of 1994. This is a really interesting statistic. So in this Rwandan genocide, about 800,000 people were killed in 100 days and millions were displaced. Huge numbers. And they asked a group of volunteers to imagine that they were a representative from like a neighboring country in charge of a refugee camp. So they had to decide... Whether or not to help 4,500 refugees with access to clean water, and half were told the camp was sheltering 250,000 people, while the rest were told it had 11,000 refugees. And people were much more willing to protect 4,500 out of 1,100 than out of 250,000 because they're responding to the proportion, even though it's the same number of people. So, I mean, this isn't the happiest article that we have, but it's important to kind of note that as we are encountering any kind of fatigue about having to stay home or how many people are suffering or dying, that this is an actual psychological phenomenon.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's depressing to know that, yeah, that's how the human mind works, but it can be useful (laughs) if you can say, okay, now I know the approach I need to take in order to make someone understand that this is a big deal. You've got to find a face to put onto it. You've got to tell a personal story that is Mm going to connect with them a lot more than just a picture of a thousand people in a hospital field. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And this also kind of applies to following news and news fatigue, which is something all of us around the globe have been dealing with, and particularly in America since, I don't know, 2016. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) the more that you're following terrible news, the worse you're going to feel. And so this is something to be aware of. They did a study in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombing from 2013, And they found that participants who followed news coverage of the attack for six or more hours a day in the week following the event were nine times more likely to report high levels of acute stress even several weeks later. Hmm. And it's a cyclical Hmm. thing, right? The more stressed you are, the more you are likely to be engaged with the media. And that's a really difficult pattern to break, especially when the news is bad. The more news, more stress, the more stress, the more news. It's a cycle that we really have to kind of be aware of.
0: I've always thought it would be an interesting experiment. Obviously, you can't control people on this level, but it would be cool if you could somehow force people that for every national news article they read, they had to read three local news articles, right? Like Mm. if you just force people to at least be somewhat aware of what's going on around them, it would slow everything down. It would cause you to be a little more focused on things you can actually do something about or have a hand in. And that Mm -hmm. might help. You know, this is not something that we could ever (laughs) put into place. Yeah. Clockwork Orange is coming
2: to mind, and I'm not sure you're going to get buy off
0: on that. Manhandling huge portions of the population into having a different emotional response. That seems not very dystopian at all.
2: (laughs) Right, right. I mean, but, you know, the key comes down to why focusing on the individual stories is really important. That's why newspaper reports will often focus on something that seems unimportant, like a person's age or their job or whether or not they had children. or photographs of personal items like a pair of shoes or an abandoned toy, like even think of that red coat from Schindler's List, right? The idea Mm -hmm. is that these personal details really bring a large
0: scale tragedy back to an individual level. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of there was a photo series many years ago. It was Abandoned Buildings in Detroit. And it was just a series of like classrooms with grass growing in the corners of them and just, you know, libraries where everything was just rotting on the shelves. And Mm -hmm. it kind of went viral and everybody looked at it and was just like, oh, man, these abandoned buildings and this is crazy. And wow. And the guy who took the photo series said later that that photo series, it had been online for months before it went viral. And the difference was the original photo shoot had people in it because there were actually people living in these buildings and living in these neighborhoods. And Mm -hmm. he had initially said, like, oh, I'm going to show the tragedy of these people. But apparently, having the people in the photos was enough to make people feel bad, and they didn't want to look <gasps> at it. And when wow. he only called out the pictures that didn't have people in them and put those up, people were fascinated, you know, because it would kind of fit wow. this narrative of decrepit items of people who are gone, but they don't actually want to see real people having to suffer. Through what was there? Uh, wow! Which was again. Yeah, that just,
2: definitely feels related. Yeah,
0: it's just very telling about human nature and how yeah. <laughs> we're uh, we're not so great. <laughs> well, you know, we
2: have our our wiring right, and mm-hmm. better understanding is something that can be used for good and for evil, right? Mm-hmm. But knowing that it's there it may be enough of a safeguard for us to really redouble our efforts, focus on different messaging, and do what we need to get involved. Yeah,
0: for sure.
1: Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from BBC, and it is by Sarah Trainer and Katie Prescott, and it's called Finding the Invisible Millions Who Are Not on Maps. Hmm. So this is a series of interviews with various people who are involved in essentially mapping unmapped areas. So Ivan Gayton from the charity Humanitarian Open Street Map, which is kind of like a Wikipedia for maps that anybody can download and edit says there are about 2 billion people in the world who don't appear on a proper map. Wow! Which, yeah, that's, that's a lot of people. Yeah. That's a huge like, that's number. 20% practically. And he says, it's shameful that we as cartographers of the world don't take enough interest to even know where they are. People are living and dying without appearing on any database. According to Mr. Gaydon, it's the most complete and accurate map for many parts of the world, his project OpenStreetMap, especially in rural Africa, where underinvestment means outside of cities, there are often blank pages where millions of people live. It's an amazing situation where anyone could wreck OpenStreetMap, anyone can add to it, but what they end up with, much like Wikipedia, is a map that is the most up-to-date in certain places. So the question is, you know, why does it matter so much? But Mr. Gaden says it can actually be a matter of life and death. Like, if you take an outbreak of disease like Ebola or the new coronavirus, contact tracing is how you stop epidemics. Mm -hmm. It's not the treatment. It's the public health and map data that makes it possible. Mm -hmm. So he actually worked on mapping efforts during the West Africa Ebola outbreak in 2014 and 15 and found that a lack of data caused critical problems locating disease hotspots because you know if you don't have a map of the area how can you map the problem sure, how can you even find <laughs> the city
0: where the outbreak's happening if it's not yeah. on the map mm-hmm.
1: yeah exactly and he says if you come into a health facility anywhere in the world with a communicable disease they'll ask you where you're from but in the low-income world you don't always have a system for describing that location oh,
0: yeah <laughs> like i'm from over the hill two miles that way <laughs> right, <Yeah>. right. <laughs>
1: This is something that Liz Hughes, chief executive of Map Action, is passionate about as well. Her organization helps provide maps for aid agencies and governments using both technology as well as volunteer support. She cites examples like flooding, where up-to-date maps are needed really urgently. She says, we can work out where the most critical need is, and then aid can be better targeted in a natural disaster or epidemic situation. The big technology firms have invested huge amounts into their mapping efforts, but Ivan Gaden says that there's a clear gulf in terms of priority. He says mm. there isn't much commercial incentive for Google to identify the nearest Starbucks in the Democratic Republic of Congo. <laughs> right. Yeah. And maps are the building blocks of economic development. Without accurate maps, it's not just that navigating from A to B can be difficult. It's also the essential tasks of proper planning for housing and infrastructure can be next to impossible.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. Because well, do you, assume- you don't know where to put a hospital if you don't even know where the people
2: are.
1: Yeah, yeah but exactly. doesn't this
2: kind of, I mean, this is sort of bringing up issues of like gentrifying old school style too, right? I mean, in order to do this and to have economic outposts or infrastructure, that seems like an imposition of whatever, I want to say Western, but it could be just whatever colonializing or imperial force wants to
0: Right. Well, and I, I don't know. This seems tricky to me. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. I felt a little bit of a, a like a chest tightening when you said way that, you know, they've never even showed up in a database. And it's like, oh, well, that seems a little big brothery. Like, I don't know that they need to. show up yeah. right. But when you start looking at this, the realities of like, OK, but if we don't have this information, at least on a larger citywide level, you end up yeah. with flooding and outbreaks and real human suffering that could have been avoided if there were a little more True. infrastructure in place. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think you know when Ivan Gaiden says never shows up in a database, he's very much tech speaking,
0: right, right, <laughs> in that moment.
1: Uh, which you know, at the same time, I am a hundred percent in support of never showing up in a database. Right, but right. I <laughs> would like to know the area I live in and the area around me and what exists. Mm-hmm. So. I think, like y'all are saying, there's a very fine line here mm-hmm. in between, you know, aid and dystopia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so one of those capitalizing, speaking of capitalism, on the need for mapping is Tanzanian entrepreneur Freddie Mboya. Mining companies pay him to map their land using drones, and this kind of detailed mapping needs to be done frequently, often in areas that are hard to reach. Mm. So he says that global technology companies just don't have the incentive to map to a local scale in rural Africa, which Mm -hmm. is time-consuming and costly, and Google and Apple Maps don't differentiate between a good road and a bad road, but that's Mm. super important in those sorts of areas. Yeah. And he adds that land titling is also critical for development. He says, land is the key to fighting poverty. But how can we do this if we don't know where our land is? If the yeah. land isn't titled, we cannot leverage the value of our land. Most of my family land has been lost or is not being developed. We need land to be surveyed and formalized so we can go to the bank and get a loan with a piece of paper saying, I actually own this land.
0: Right, mm-hmm. right.
1: Mm-hmm. So it sounds really like these people are already embroiled in the system of you know capitalism and land yeah. ownership and all that, and they're at a loss because they don't have the tools to compete Or even, you know, survive functionally with the rest of the world around them.
2: Yeah, it's hard to, you know, pivot a position of power and land ownership when you can't really prove
0: it and it can't be tied to you. Right, right. If you're already stuck in the system, you might as well be able to take advantage of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And Scottish geographer Paul Georgie, who's the founder of a mapping company named GeoGeo, says that in today's society, not being on a map is akin to being invisible. Yeah. Even just having your house or your hut or your village on a map with the associated roads is vital for the government to help with planning. He worked on a project in Tanzania setting up energy grids in remote communities to do some of this work as well. Mm -hmm. And he said that we downloaded rough satellite images and took them into villages. Maps speak a universal language, and people were actually able to label the pictures. Formalizing this, mapping it, and making it tangible gives people a larger voice around the world.
0: Yeah, as long as I hope they don't get anyone like me in there, because I'm terrible with directions. So like, if you if you put a map in front of me, I will give you bad data. Like, you don't want to ask uh, me where, where the nearest anything is. Super fair.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, ironically, as a result of having no maps, these people are probably way, way good at figuring out right, directions Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm
0: sure part of the reason I'm not good at it is because now I have Google Maps and I'm like, I don't need to know how to drive to my grocery store. It can tell me. So I'm just going to zone out and not not ever learned yeah. you know, my
1: surroundings <laughs> mm-hmm. the world's bank edward anderson says that community-led mapping gives valuable immediacy to the information he says we need to update the data on a yearly or quarterly basis in a bottom-up way nearly every urban adult has access to a smartphone now mm-hmm. so we can use this community collected data to really update our knowledge of the informal areas a lot of these buildings are just the result of you know rural sprawl as well as urban sprawl mm-hmm. They're unplanned, but people do know that their own names for streets locally and where the water points are and the mm. communal toilets are. They're just not on any map.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So they can just tap into that information source. They can get it written down. It's just that right now it's only in people's heads.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So we go back to Ivan Gaden, who does acknowledge that the public health argument for comprehensive mapping doesn't convince everyone, unfortunately. Ultimately, he says it'll be an economic incentive that wins over the cynics. So, you know, capitalism wins again. Yeah, yeah, he says the most compelling use case for the average person is to get a pizza or order a cab, which in comparison (laughs) to some of the other stuff sounds extremely mundane. But he says that my belief is that as the technology makes it possible for people not to have to spend half a day working out where the driver is, they will do it. People want to do business. So the implication from that seems to say that, you know, these businesses and economies are already trying to survive. They're just making it way harder and way harder for people to get jobs Mm -hmm. or to Mm -hmm. network or whatever else you need to do when you don't know where people are, because there's literally no map to show you. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, and I wonder how fast now that, like you said, smartphones are basically ubiquitous. I wonder how long it'll be before it is just fixed. Like you said, there's not a lot of incentive to save everybody from cholera. There's incentive to get everybody a delivered pizza. Right.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I guess time will tell. Right. Uh, those satellites that Zuckerberg and Gates are launching will probably uh, do a lot there. <laughs> right.
2: right. Definitely <laughs> not spell out global doom for
1: anyone. That's
0: right. They'll yeah. They'll help a little. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> At first. <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next, Next link.
0: link. All right. Well, this one comes from the Guardian. It's called Unhinged Duo Reunited After 125 Years Apart. So it is Ooh. a little bit of like kind of a romantic love story-ish. Basically, in 2000, a curator at the Mauritshuis Museum in The Hague in the Netherlands noticed uh, some odd details about a painting by leading Renaissance artist Bartolomeos Brun the Elder. Uh, it was basically a portrait they had in their collection. It was a woman. She was wearing a braided bun and holding a sprig of bittersweet which the curator recognized were both signs of impending marriage. And she said, oh, "Oh, this was like an engagement portrait. And there were actually little hinge marks on one side of the frame indicating that, as was traditional at the time, a second portrait of her betrothed should have been attached and they had been separated at some point. And so she kind of just made it her mission over approximately 20 years to find this missing fiancé of this woman. The one clue that she had at first was painted on the back was the coat of arms of Peter Bellinghausen, who was a professor of civil law in Colonia, known to have four daughters. So they assumed this was one of his daughters. And Mm -hmm. the curator going after this was Ariane van Suctelen. And after a whole lot of research, she discovered a catalog from an art sale in 1896 that included a split diptych. Basically, in the catalog, they said these two things are connected. We're splitting them. You can bid on either one. And the pair was attributed to a different painter and there were no pictures of the paintings. But in the catalog, there was a family tree of coats of arms that included both Bellinghausen's and the man's family, the mystery man. They now had his coat of arms. Right. Mm. And so they said, "Okay, now we're going to start looking at paintings, trying to locate this coat of arms. They traced the coat of arms back to public records and found out he was named Jacob Omphalius. He was a respected lawyer who had become chancellor of his city in 1545, and he was married to an Elizabeth Bellinghausen in 1539. So they said, we're pretty sure this is the guy. We know his name. We know kind of his history. Now we just got to find his painting, which is still somewhere out in the world. Incidentally, Mm -hmm. fun side note about them. uh, When they were married, he was 39 and she was 21. They had Mm -hmm. 13 children, only six of whom survived childhood. And in fact, after Omphalius died many years later, Elizabeth remarried and had a 14th child when she was 49 years old. Whoa.
1: So she
0: was very cool. And they really wanted to, (laughs) you know, kind of find Omphalius and and reunite the two paintings even more at that point. So they, from that catalog in the 1890s, they traced the portrait that they assumed was his, sold to a guy named Ralph Brocklebank. And they continue (laughs) to sort of find it from sale to sale up to an anonymous auction in 1955 where no buyer was listed. They just said somebody bought it. We don't know who. The trail went cold. But just recently in May of 2019, an item that was just called Portrait of an Unknown Man appeared at a small auction house in Paris. And a German auctioneer, hey. because suchtelin had done such a great job of sort of publicizing, look, we're looking for this. If anybody sees this, that's got this family coat of arms on it. If anyone's got a frame that's got some hinge marks on it, that would be really useful. And a German auctioneer recognized it. <gasps> so he got in touch with her. And with the help of the Rembrandt Association, the Dutch Lottery, and a private donor, who they don't name, Omphalius's portrait was purchased for 225,000 pounds. Which I think Ooh, is wow. more a reflection of the fact that it was painted by Brun the Elder as opposed to the fact that it was really mm. cool to get these two back together. But I don't know. They paid <laughs> they paid for it one way or the other. <laughs> and, of course, wow. once they, they got it in their hands, the hinge marks matched up. They put the two of them <gasps> back together. And as they're reunited, they're now seen together at the Maurituus. if you'd like to go and see them in their Aww. original fiancé engagement portraits, I suppose reunited yeah exactly i i really liked that the title called them an unhinged duo because i (laughs) no, i I was expecting some kind of natural born killers history edition i fully admit i fell for the pun i was like oh crazy people let's read about this and then i was like no they're just talking about actual literal hinges but you know it's kind of cool to think that it makes you wonder how many other paintings are sold without the relevant information i mean obviously when it was originally a pair they knew who these two people were. They knew why they were together, and yet for some reason they said, "Nah, let's split them up." Like how I don't know if they thought they were going capitalism get more money that way. rears its ugly head again. Yeah, I don't know, but they they finally have them <laughs> back together now. And uh, and people can go and, and witness the much older man with his very young bride.
2: <laughs> you know, the, the age discrepancy was a thing, but that's also an age discrepancy that we just call May Decembers now. Like, it wasn't like she was
0: 11. Right, right, right. She, was she was 21. Was, you know, she was 21. She can make her own decisions. And, you know, they stayed together for a lot of years all the way until his death. So obviously, yeah. it wasn't so bad. Nobody murdered each other. They weren't that unhinged. <laughs> and, nice. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We have many more articles that we didn't have time to get to. Some of those articles include giant sea scorpions were the underwater titans of prehistoric Australia, the U.S. Navy ship built by the Soviet Union, and can you train yourself to like foods you hate? So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support us and keep our podcast going, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Moismer Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.